Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Rob Wolf is a two-time New York Times bestselling author, co-founder of Element, a former research biochemist, and quite simply one of the world's leading experts when it comes to all things paleo. Rob, welcome. Huge honor. I'm always happy to bring down property values wherever I go. So thanks for letting me do that. (laughs) Well, it's so great to have you. As I mentioned before we got started, we have so many mutual friends and I have a lot of respect for you. And I can't believe it's taken this long for us to finally do a podcast. But here we are. I'm honored. Thank you. (laughs) So I'm going to start with a big one. I'm going to start with weight loss. 42% of Americans still considered obese. I say still considered obese, numbers are getting worse, yet we're spending more than ever on weight loss. What are, what are we getting so wrong? It, it is such a good question. And I had these questions ahead of time and I still struggle. <laughs> the question is far better than my answer is going to be, but I'm a biochemist by training and I, I consider myself kind of a, a self-taught evolutionary biologist. Like I never had specific training in that other than like peripheral classes. But I really do think that this kind of gene environment mismatch is enormous in this story. And it's on so many different levels. COVID has been a fascinating experience in this. Like I usually talk about sleep, food, movement, and community. And during COVID, during pandemics, one of the crazy things, like it's been mentioned that in catastrophe scenarios, one of the interesting features of like a flood or a hurricane, or even like when England was getting bombed during World War II, was that people could come together and they had like this sense of community that they had maybe never experienced in their life. And they would look back and say, that was actually the happiest time of my life when we had bombs falling on us because all these people were working together and all the the kind of petty pissing matches of day-to-day life seemed to be gone. And then during COVID, we like Zoom. This, this was the closest thing that, or some medium like this that we had to community and it really falls flat. And I think that harkens back to our small group hunter-gatherer past where we Typically, we're in these extended family groups. There's this uh, idea of Dunbar's number where we can keep track of about 150 people and much beyond that. We can't make sense of things. And I think that is a difficult thing to manage and to navigate. And then on our food environment, we neither hunt nor gather anymore. I mean, we go into supermarkets and I, I... Forget the exact number. There is something like 50 plus thousand food-like items in the supermarket. Every year, there's 11,000 new items that are introduced. A huge number of these things have been engineered to be what we would call hyperpalatable. It's like the Lay's potato chip tagline. I bet you can't eat just one. I'll take that bet all day long. The huge swath of what we consume has been engineered to bypass the normal neuroregulation of appetite that we have in our brain. And this is our, this is kind of our world. And these foods tend to be remarkably inexpensive compared to like real food. They're really time efficient for some people, like folks who have moved to the United States or they're in developing countries, the ability to eat processed food is a status symbol. It shows that you are wealthy enough, you are successful enough to be able to eat something other than what what many people call peasant food, which is real food. So, man, there's just a remarkable number of things that go into this whole process. But at the end of the day, I, I think that it really is kind of a gene environment mismatch. And to some degree, I think that this is why the, the one area that we see people fail uniformly, this is kind of a, a funny sideline, but when you compare the American dietetics recommended dietary approach, which is basically just try to have a little bit of everything, including processed food, but just try not to eat too much. It doesn't matter what diet you compare that to, but everything else beats what we are recommended to do. Vegan diet, cabbage soup diet, low carb diet, high protein diet, like everything works better than the one thing that we were told to do, which is eat everything to moderation. And I, I think it's because this whole notion of moderation is 
it's a nonsensical term. It has absolutely no meaning from like a biological sense. It's this made up construct. If you go into a, a 7-Eleven and like the salty crunchy aisle is amazing. There's 50 different salty crunchy items. And if you're not into salty crunchy, well, here's a sweet and savory. And then here's a, a spicy mix of all of them. And so moderation in that context, which seems to be the one thing that we are told to do from kind of a, a medical intervention perspective, seems to be the one thing that is guaranteed to fail. And I kind of look at different dietary interventions, whether it's paleo or vegan or what have you, all that these things are doing is limiting palate options in a way that hopefully for you, it works. But the the complete exposure to everything is really not working for, for virtually anyone. There are a few people that are able to weigh and measure their food and they're kind of fig, figure competitor type people. And I, I just don't see the average person really doing that. That's not a livable, sustainable process. And I know that that was a far poorer answer than what your question was, but there's a lot that goes into, in my opinion, the obesity epidemic. And it's not just carbs. It's not just fat. It's not just seed oil. It's everything. It's circadian biology. We stay up too late. We're, we're on our devices. Our stress levels are crazy. We don't have adequate socialization. But then as a baseline, our, our food environment is very broken and it's hard to even figure out what, the, what a true north is to be in trying to reset that. Well, I, I, look, I, there's a lot to unpack there. And I'll start with, I, I, think, I think we all agree that it's very hard to compete with uh, big CPG in terms of their not so good for you processed food mm -hmm. options out there. Uh, they have food scientists that are designed to outsmart us and they will continue to do so in the same way the engineers at Facebook and Google are designed to make sure that we stay on their platforms. It's going to yeah. be hard to win that bottle. With that said, we also have a lot of mutual friends who companies have done well and they've sold the big CPG, the Mark Sissons of the world, Chasing Carbs, where like they, they know that they need to change and they are changing, but it is, it's still hard to compete when there are bad products out there in front of you in that environment. But so I think we, we all agree on that one. I think we all agree it's about eating real food. The Michael Pollan quote, eat food, not too much, mostly right. plants. Where I want to go a little bit, you talk about genetic mismatch was that the mm -hmm. can, can we so is that do you mean my I'm, I'm doing my 23 and me or a lot of functional medicine doctors like the three by four genetics test which i recently did and was eye-opening are, are you going when you're talking about doing a test and and looking not just about you know looking at foods you're looking at environment chemical like the, the whole picture is that where you were going with that Mine's more broad. It's just kind of our species is really poorly adapted to everything that has to do with our, our kind of food environment. And it's interesting within vet, veterinary medicine or even, uh, gosh, my kids have been really geeked out on this, this show through Nat Geo called Secrets of the Zoo. And so they kind of a reality show where they look at the zookeepers and the vet, veterinarians and caretaking these animals. And I want to say like 85% of the problems that arise for these animals within zoos, ultimately the veterinary, they maybe need to do a surgical intervention or a, a pharmaceutical intervention or what have you. But about 85% of the time, the veterinarian says, well, we really need to modify their diet because they're eating too much refined food. And so they're getting some sort of kibble or chow or a biscuit or something like that. And these animals just don't eat those things in a, a, a natural environment. And although there are healthy human societies the world over that eat a wide variety of like protein, carbs, fat, some are very grain-based, some are not very grain-based, but the, the commonality is that it, when people start consuming processed, hyper-palatable foods, then we, we start seeing problems you know, virtually immediately. So it's not getting as granular as looking at, say, like an, an APOE genotype or something like that to really get in and start thinking about like cardiovascular disease versus neurological disease risk. This is just more broadly a commentary that people push back against this a, a fair amount. And I, I think to our detriment, that it, but also people misrepresent this, but 
15 to 20,000 years ago, not a single one of our ancestors did anything but hunting and gathering. And every once in a while, you'll find a study. It's like, okay, this group was doing some amount of agriculture 16,000 years ago. It's like, okay, got me. So, so that timeline pushes back a little bit, but agriculture for the most part was fairly novel 5,000 years ago. And then depending on like Northern European, Native American, like that is even the transition to a hunter-gatherer lifeway to a more agrarian lifeway, maybe a couple of hundred years old. And then you fast forward and even 150 years ago, I, 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 we were reading this story with our, our girls, so they're eight and six, and the woman was relating that her grandmother would buy a bag of sugar per year. And it lasted for the whole year. And it was a five pound bag of sugar. And this was what would feed a family. And it was very meticulously measured out. And so just within like 50 years, we went from consuming literally like maybe a pound of sugar a year per capita. I think it's like 130 pounds of sugar per, per year now. And people will push back on that. They're like, well, it doesn't really matter that it's sugar. They, people just need to moderate their intake. But this becomes this circular argument. It's like, well, you're not just eating scoops of table sugar. You're eating sugar as part of beverages and baked goods and super long, uh, uh, shelf-stable, highly palatable foods that bypass the neuroregulation of appetite and you overeat them. And it's virtually impossible to not overeat them. So we end up in this kind of circular logic deal. But the genetic commentary is just that, I mean, another possibly interesting example, when you and I grew up, there was adult onset diabetes and there was childhood diabetes. The childhood diabetes is type one diabetes. It's an autoimmune condition where the beta cells of the pancreas are, are damaged due to an autoimmune reaction and the kid can't produce insulin. It was unheard of when you and I were growing up for a child to develop type 2 insulin-resistant diabetes. I, I think the earliest documented case of a type 2 diabetic human now is 18 months old. And this was in 30 years. This has gone from an unheard of condition to children and adolescents developing type 2 diabetes and, and type 1 diabetes has, has increased dramatically too, which is kind of insightful on the whole systemic inflammatory nature of our diet and environment and whatnot. But this was a condition that was unheard of. It didn't exist. And now it's become so ubiquitous that we kind of accept it as normal. And I guess it is normal in that it, it's happening everywhere, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it, this is a... a favorable situation. And again, if we just kind of jump back a, a, a single generation, there were no children experiencing type 2 diabetes. Yeah, the diabetes numbers are just really scary. Stunning. Yeah. In terms, yeah, it, 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 and, and it's one thing, pre-diabetes, what's even scarier, the pre-diabetes numbers specifically, I think the number the numbers escaping me, but there's a significant uh, percentage of the population that's pre-diabetic and doesn't know it. Mm-hmm. And, and once you become diabetic, it's very hard. And we, we, know, we know some people reverse it through lifestyle or manage it through lifestyle, but it's very hard to get off that train. And it leads to all sorts of health outcomes you do not want. I know you don't want to generalize, but if you had to generalize, and then we'll move off the topic of weight loss. If you had to generalize, in your opinion, what should we all be doing if you know we do want to lose a couple pounds, if we do want to feel great? What are some of those lifestyle modifications, in your opinion, that kind of work for most people? If there was one thing in this kind of diabetes, overweight area, if people didn't consume liquid calories, particularly sugary beverages, I think that would be enormous. I don't know if it would cut it in half, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did, whether we're talking adults or children. And this extends to juices as well as the more soda type type story. And this is kind of an interesting thing within the CPG space. This is a really uh, fertile ground to, to crack open a, a product. But we are seeing more of them that are either low sugar or no sugar and whatnot. So if I were to, if I could wave a magic wand and if we could just get folks to not consume sugar sweetened beverages, including fruit juices for the most part. I mean, if it was back 1950 style, your glass of orange juice was like the size of cup that you and I use to, to rinse our teeth after brushing our teeth. And we, we don't really have a problem there, but I would say that the sugar sweetened beverages 
would be incredibly powerful as a, a first line intervention. Like if we could change that, we would change a lot of outcomes. I think that's fair. I, I think everyone would agree with you there. So if you go back to weight loss, you go back to diabetes and you hit the why, I think people want to live a, a long, happy, healthy life. So I'm going to, I'm going to segue to longevity in 2021. We have all sorts of tools, testing, technology, as I'm wearing my Aura, my Whoop, my Fitbit. I, I talked about the three by four testing I've done. I, I get 25 plus vials of blood quarterly. Uh, I, I love it. I'm passionate about it. I'm, I'm right. a curious individual. This is what I do for a living. I want to be educated. Right. Are, are we trying too hard? When does it cross over to, to TMI, if you will? You know, in your opinion, what matters, what doesn't? What should we really pay attention to if we're focused on longevity? Oh, it's a good question. And I'm glad you, I'm happy that you mentioned, are, are we trying too hard? My, my big talk for 2020 was supposed to be uh, longevity. Are we trying too hard? And I think I got to do it at the Metabolic Health Summit. And that was the only public forum I was able to, to present it at. And then everything shut down. But there's all this interesting research in protein restriction, calorie restriction, fasting, that seems to suggest that this is just the, the route to reducing cancer rates and preventing neurodegenerative disease and dramatically enhancing longevity. And I, I wrote my first piece on the potential of some intermittent fasting, improving health span and lifespan in 2005. And by 2006, I deeply regretted releasing it because it was released into a population of CrossFitters who just take everything to the absolute nth degree. The If a little bit of carbohydrate restriction is good, then all the carbohydrate restriction is better. If a little bit of time-restricted feeding could improve your metabolism, then clearly only eating one meal every 48 hours is going to be like the best thing to do. And you start encountering people, they're like, my hair's falling out. I haven't had a sex drive. And this is male or female. I haven't had a sex drive in six months. I, I have lost all my muscle mass. It's like, well, what are you doing? Well, I, I work out six days a week. I intermittent fast 22 hours a day. I ate five grams of carbs last month, but I, I did a hot yoga workout afterwards to soak up all the carbs that I ate. And you're just kind of like, oh my God. And so I see a lot of that and just people pushing this stuff, in my opinion, way too far on the one hand. But then when I really started critically looking at the longevity research around calorie restriction and fasting and whatnot... It was really underwhelming. It, it, it uh, you know, there's some people like uh, Walter Longo and Mark Matson who've done some really amazing work. But when you look, so there was one review paper, and I'll, I'll forward it to you. But it, it, the title was uh, "Calorie Restriction Does Not Increase Lifespan in All Organisms and Is Unlikely to Do So in Humans." And it goes through and kind of details the most comprehensive kind of kind of story that I'd seen on this. And one of the interesting sidelines that it made was that it does seem that at least in some organisms, if you're feeding them a terrible lab chow based diet, which is what these animals are fed, it's a massively processed diet because trying to be good scientists, nutritional scientists, they want to know how much protein, carbs, fat, and vitamins an, an organism is eating. Easiest way to do that is to feed the organism a bunch of highly processed food. And so like mice and rats are fed sucrose with palm oil, with whey protein, with vitamins mixed in. And, they, and you have to study them in really unique, interesting ways because they end up developing cancer and all kinds of other diseases at such an early age that, that you have to do kind of crazy things to pre prevent that. So like you're trying to study this thing over here, but the diet is killing these animals, but you... The, the problem with a whole food, a species appropriate diet is you don't really know exactly how much the organism's eating. Like if you just put crickets and mealworms and seeds and whatnot, it, you don't know exactly how much the organism is eating. But there have been a few studies where they fed these organisms species appropriate diets, diets that they would experience out in a natural living environment. And what you find is calorie restriction make these animals die young. It doesn't confer a longevity benefit. And so the, that's one piece. And then another interesting piece is wild type organisms brought into the lab and fed a lab type diet. They don't tend to overeat, at least not the first generation or two. And what we're finding is that 
we've selected four organisms in the lab setting that both overeat, but have not been protected evolutionarily from overeating. And so they have a tendency to overeat, but yet they still develop a cardiovascular disease and cancer and all the rest of this stuff. And so it's really misleading. And actually, Brett Weinstein has talked a lot about this, just the, the difficulties or the real challenge of looking at a host of different research from toxicology to other situations because of some kind of telomere length changes within lab-based animals. So I think that possibly the almost the totality, like 95% of like longevity research is an artifact of feeding animals a super shitty diet and then comparing it against feeding them less of that terrible diet. And that may be like the whole story of longevity <laughs> research today. And there's some very smart people out there that are very gung ho about this stuff that, that have, that don't carry the same perspective necessarily that I do, but I think that they've kind of got, if I'm right on this, I think they've really gotten out in the mechanistic weeds. And if I've had an advantage on this, it's kind of pulling back and using a little bit more of this evolutionary lens on this. And when we think just about what should we do to have both a, a good health span and also a good lifespan. So lifespan is how long an organism is going to live. Health span is how functional that organism is over, you know, hopefully health span and lifespan track very tightly. You don't want to get to... 50 years old and then you're wheelchair bound and sick and, and have all kinds of problems and then live for another 30 or 40 years and you're miserable. Like that's a really big divergence from health span and lifespan. But an interesting feature to all this to me is when we look at the things that go into supporting health span, resistance training, some intermittency in eating, but some feasting, some fasting, definitely getting adequate protein intake finding a glycemic load that works for us. Some people do pretty well on higher carb diets. Some people do better on lower carb diets. Getting adequate sun on our person. This is a whole interesting aside, but the difference in morbidity and mortality of people who get adequate sun versus inadequate sun is as significant as a smoker versus a non-smoker. Just getting some sun on your skin, and I'm not saying turn yourself into a leather handbag, but it reduces your likelihood of all-cause mortality as significantly as smoking versus not smoking. And this stuff is very well studied, very well supported. We know that all those things will improve our life now. It very likely will improve our life later. It is highly likely to reduce our, likely, uh, our probability of developing cancer and neurodegenerative disease and cardiovascular disease. Supporting muscle mass and preventing sarcopenia, the age-related muscle mass process, it does all of this stuff. And it's kind of a known, it's kind of a guarantee. But when we flip this around, all of us have a risk profile of some probability of developing cancer or neurodegenerative disease or type 2 diabetes or what have you. But it's not a guarantee for any of us. But yet people are doing these, in my opinion, really extraordinary interventions super low protein intake, fasting for a week at a time and doing it at a, a rather frequent clip, all in the hopes that they're going to mitigate some disease potential while they are absolutely increasing the likelihood of worsening age-related sarcopenia if they take this stuff too far. So there's this guarantee of losing muscle mass, losing the ability for maximum power production as we age, that begins in our 30s. If you strength train and eat well, you can, instead of the curve being like this, the curve can be more, we're flattening the curve in the other direction. We know we can do that. And we know that can benefit health span and lifespan. And it, it's a guaranteed risk mitigator. Whereas some of these really extraordinary interventions, it's a complete guess. And so I, I guess, it, you know, as an example, there are a lot of people that they will jump on forums or social media and they're like, hey, I do a 48-hour fast once a month, I'm thinking about jumping up to a 72-hour fast, should I do it or not? And my question would be, are you doing, how much strength training are you doing? And the question should be, can you fit in an additional day per week of strength training versus should you fit in an, an additional day per week of strength training, in my opinion, is going to benefit us far more 
than an additional day of fasting per month, uh, you know, in the 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 big total thing, uh, you know, story. It's not very sexy. Uh, it, it's not where the Silicon Valley execs are putting all their time and money and effort and all the rest of that stuff. But I, I think that's where the real return on investment lies with the kind of longevity health span story. So I'm going to come back to, or we're going to stay on fasting for a moment because I think it's really interesting. So do you think, is there a certain level, is there a certain level with fasting where it crosses over to not necessarily benefiting us in terms of our health span or weight loss? Is it, is there like a hard line in the sand, whether it's 16 hours or 18 hours, or it's the 36, 48, 72 and beyond? So is it, people taking it too far or is there a certain or is there a certain level where it's like you know hey what we could we could all benefit from doing a 14 hour 12 hour essentially not eating while we're sleeping and, and first yep. thing in the morning so like what's can you clarify that a bit yeah you know i think that the it, it'll vary from person to person so I, I will acknowledge that if somebody is overweight they're dyslipidemic they have insulin resistance and they're using some amount of fasting or time-restricted eating to lose weight, that's going to be of benefit because we know that normalizing metabolic flexibility is going to be a huge win. So it's going to be a little bit situational there, but let's say the individual is pretty lean. They've got to the point of insulin sensitivity and metabolic flexibility that is generally good. Where is the upside lying in what amount of fasting? I think some early time-restricted eating is maybe the... Um, lowest hanging fruit, like kind of the greatest return, lowest risk profile where folks tend to eat more of their calories early in the day. If they're eating carbs, eat more of the carbs earlier in the day. It seems like people are more metabolically attuned to handling both calories and uh, carbohydrate load earlier in the day. And that, so it would be like a big breakfast, pretty large lunch, small or, or non-existent dinner. And I do know that socially this sucks because it's much easier to skip breakfast and do a large dinner versus if I, vice versa. So I, I get that. And I'm not saying that there isn't benefit to pot potentially skipping breakfast and then doing a lunch and a dinner, but some amount of like time restricted eating most days, I think makes a ton of sense. Folks get really fired up about autophagy and all that type of stuff. And that's great, but it's worth mentioning there's no assays for autophagy. Like it's very difficult to do this in a non-clinical setting. So people start talking about this, like they, like it's their first cousin and they went to a charm school with, <laughs> with autophagy or something. It's like virtually nobody really gets what's really going on there. And it's worth mentioning drinking coffee enhances autophagy lifting weights upregulates up autophagy. Like there's a bunch of things that upregulate autophagy and you don't necessarily want autophagy just going willy nilly and like suppression of mTOR. It's, it's worth mentioning that to identify cancer, you, there's uh, mTOR is two complexes, mTOR complex one and mTOR complex two. You need mTOR complex one turned on at various points. And that means some amount of amino acid, some amount of insulin related signaling. You need that turned on to identify cancerous cells so that then mTOR complex two can intervene and actually interrupt that cancerous process and initiate apoptosis. So this idea that we just want to stamp mTOR out at all costs is, is kind of ridiculous. It, it doesn't really reflect the way this stuff works. So I, I think it's, to, to try to more precisely answer your question, I think that it's quickly diminishing returns on the fasting side. Like if you want to do once, so generally maybe like a 16-hour fast most days and you don't have to be religious about that maybe a breakfast and a dinner or a breakfast and a lunch and, and try to avoid dinner. I think that there's some legit power to that. It, not the least of which is if somebody, they're like, I'm just not going to limit the types of things that I eat, but I'm willing to constrain it to a period of time. That can be a really effective strategy. Like if you just, if you have 24 hours a day to eat garbage versus like six or eight hours a day to eat garbage, like it can really <laughs> add up very beneficially. And then somebody wants to do a 24 hour fast once a month. I, I think that's great. Like people will talk about, you don't really get into the main benefits until like 72 hours in. I don't really buy that 
when we're in an otherwise already metabolically healthy state and we're lifting weights, we're having some coffee or tea, like we're doing all these other things that really supplement and augment the autophagic process. So I, I think that it's very rapidly diminishing returns on the fasting side. If people want to do a little bit here and there from a mental toughness thing, or just kind of like ticking the box once a month, once a quarter, I do a three day fast. That's great. But just make sure that when you flip that back around, eat your protein, lift your weights, because my nervousness is people whittling away muscle mass as they age. So let's stay on protein for a moment because you're talking about with regards to longevity. So can you just spend a minute talking about the relationship between protein consumption and mTOR and that relationship and the consensus on how it relates to, to not consensus, but there are a lot of people have a strong opinion on mTOR and protein with regards to longevity. Yeah. So without, so mTOR in general is super important for immune function, systemic inflammatory signaling, muscle maintenance and, and growth. It plays a host of different roles. And when we look at chronically overfed organisms, mTOR seems to be turned on all the time. And the things that activate mTOR are glucose, insulin, amino acids. Those are are, are the main stimulators of mTOR. And without a doubt, an individual, whether it's a mouse or a human that is chronically overfed, chronically overeating protein, chronically overeating carbohydrate is in a chronically hyperinsulinemic state. Anything that you could do to suppress mTOR in that individual is going to be a huge win. So, so this is again, where I think if you take a diseased or heading toward diseased individual and do this intervention, I mean, if your ship is heading towards an iceberg and there's momentum going there, you want to turn it around and get out of Dodge as quick as you can. And I I can't think of a, a way to suppress mTOR activity more powerfully than fasting. I mean, even a low carb diet, there will be some insulin signaling, there will be some amino acids. So you'll have some degree of activation of mTOR in that uh, scenario. So really strategic and aggressive fasting could really turn that whole thing around. But it's interesting, again, when you look at wild living organisms, when you look at pre-industrial and non-Westernized societies, these folks have some amount of fasting, like in religious scenarios and whatnot, but they're not fasting a ton. They're not overeating but they're also not like actively trying to undereat. They just tend to live in an environment where their food tends to more perfectly match their activity level and they tend to, to not overeat. And we, it's not to say that significant fasting in those folks wouldn't dramatically enhance longevity, but the, uh, this, this gets out in the weeds and I don't know if we want to get into it, but genetic reaction norms, it's, it's, a look at the the resource allocation of different genes and whether or not a trait is going to be selected or not selected. And and when you dig into the genetic reaction norms of humans, the way that we allocate resources, particularly around reproduction, although kids feel like a major grind for me, like it, it feels very energy intensive compared to a lot of other organisms, it's not. And so when humans If you calorie restrict folks, you can see a suppression in fecundity and the ability to reproduce, but it's not the same way as in other organisms will almost go into a stasis mode. And then when they start eating food later, they will become fertile. And so this is a way that these organisms might be able to survive a food scarcity event by basically bumping their fertility down the road. Humans don't really seem to do that. So there's some reasons why we would question whether or not even additional fasting and, and various interventions would benefit people. And again, I don't know if I'm, I'm keeping this totally on track, but there's there have been these claims of like super long-lived individuals in, in various regions like the Blue Zones and whatnot. There was a, a hilariously titled paper that really got in and dug into that. And the main takeaway was that in the areas in which the Blue Zones exist in the claims of super centenarians, there are virtually no birth certificates and there is massive pension fraud. So grandpa dies, his son assumes his identity because he'll continue to receive his pension and nobody has birth certificates. So (laughs) nobody really knows how old anybody is anyway. So a lot of this blue zone stuff appears to be really dubious in, in quality. Like, so there are some people that seem to get into the, the one tens, one twenties, but 
that seems to be about it. And really, it seems to be people can generally reasonably be pretty healthy up into their 90s, and then the wheels kind of fall off on things. So again, I know I'm bouncing around a, a whole lot. In the, in the talk that I have, Longevity, Are We Trying Too Hard? I actually kind of have a cogent, if this, then that kind of kind of feed forward thing there. But circling back, I think to your, your original question, this protein mTOR story, if we aren't chronically overfed, if we are lifting some weights, doing some type of resistance training so that the mTOR activity is really targeted to the muscles and is mitigated throughout the rest of the body, which is interestingly something that resistance training does. If we have some intermittency in eating, we're not overeating, but we're also not chronically undereating. I, I don't see the same boogeyman there that other folks do. And again, particularly overlaid in this picture of we know that sarcopenia will assail us at some point. And sarcopenia is this age-related muscle mass loss and the loss of ability to produce force and whatnot. When you go into a, when one goes into a rest home, it is when we lose 40% of the muscle mass that we had as our in our youth. When HIV transitions to AIDS and AIDS becomes fatal, it is when we largely have hit a point where we've lost a certain threshold of muscle mass. And it's about 30, 30 to 40% of what we had in our youth. And if you want to avoid a rest home, if you want to avoid neurodegenerative disease, if you want to avoid diabetes, all of that plays favorably to maintaining adequate muscle mass into aging. And I'm not saying that people need to go be a competitive bodybuilder. Like I'm five foot nine, about 170 pounds, pretty lean, fairly strong. But like, if I can maintain that into my eighties, I'm going to do really well. There's epidemiological studies suggest that I'll have a di disproportionate low likelihood of a trip and fall of a trip and fall that results in a, a hip fracture and on and on. And then metabolically, that maintenance of muscle mass, I'm more metabolically flexible. I'm more insulin resistant. I have more glucose disposal. So my likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes is dramatically less. The basic activity of strength training, particularly in kind of a lower carb environment, brain-derived neurotropic factor requires a ketogenic state to even be produced. And this actually makes a little bit of case for a little bit of fasted training, but on the heels of the fasted training, you should probably eat so that brain-derived neurotropic factor can stimulate both the neurological side of this, but also the kind of muscle motor end plate part of this story. So we have to stimulate the, the regrowth and whatnot. So I think it's intermittency some punctuated equilibrium and not just, again, looking at this as like an all-on or an all-off type scenario. Fascinating. And that may have just been a word salad and meant nothing to anybody. No, I, I think it's fascinating. And I think generally we have a tendency, you know, we hear something's working, we hear their benefits, we just go all in. And I think right. the way you spoke about fasting, I think says a lot, oh, IF works, great, let's go. Let's, whoa, we take it too far. Right. Um, Here's possibly a, a good example, just really quick, and I'll try to be concise with it. But folks really look at all this stuff, in my opinion, too much as an on-off switch versus kind of a rheostat that has all this variation to it. And a, a piano keyboard, if I'm not mistaken, has a standard size, has 88 keys on it. And it can be used in literally an infinite number of ways to produce music. You change the timing, you change the sequencing, like there may be... I don't know, 88 to the 87th or something, but that's a whole lot of potential permutations on that. But when we look at our genetics, we have 23,000 genes that can be turned on and off and via different epigenetic interventions, diet, lifestyle, all these different things. Why would it, it will definitely not improve the quality of music production if we look at a keyboard as either all on or all off, like music stops, there is no more music with that. There's intermittency and timing and pacing, and this follows that. Why would it not be even an order of magnitude more important to consider that intermittency and timing and pacing and A needs to come before B and whatnot in the story of expressing our genetics? And so that's where I, I think that this overly in the weeds mechanistic view kind of hides the, the shocking complexity in this story. And the only way that we can manage that complexity is at a macro level, movement, exercise, food, community, circadian rhythm, et cetera. Yeah. So well said. Thank you. Well Thanks. said. So well said. So 
We're going to segue to this. You put out this great trends report, which I'd be remiss not to walk through because there are just some fascinating tidbits in there. And I'm gonna, we're going to go through some of them. And the first one that stood out to me was human body temperature. So I had no idea mm-hmm. that human body temperature has decreased from the standard 98.6 to 97.9, which you say has a lot of implications for chronic infection. So can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, it's interesting that a, a host of microorganisms, well, it, what, what happens when we get sick under good circumstances? We mount a fever and this can be beneficial in a host of different, for a host of different reasons. One of them is it just makes us feel terrible and we lay down and we hopefully take better care of ourselves during that time. It increases our metabolic rate. So the kinetics of most chemical reactions, if you double, if you in- increase the, the temperature of a reaction 10 degrees Celsius, you will tend to double a reaction. So all of the proteins that are being made, all the, the enzymes that are being processed, all the antibodies that are being produced, even though, uh, say like going from a 98.6 to 102 temperature is kind of modest, you're actually getting a really significant increase in the, the kind of enzyme kinetics of manufacturing things because of the increased temperature. So that can be helpful. And then finally, for bacteria in particular, but to some degree also uh, viruses, they tend to have an optimal operating temperature. And so increasing that temperature can decrease the kind of survivability of the environment that they're in. The flip side of this is that if we are still alive, but operating at a lower body temperature, what we have become is a a really rather nice Petri dish for stuff to grow in. Uh, Bacteria, mold, potentially to some degree viruses, but I, I would see it being more bacteria and mold related. Our immune system is not responding in the same way, just kind of our innate immune response. We're a more hospitable environment for a host of an infectious disease. There are some organisms that can make the jump from cats and dogs to humans, but there's really not that many And one of the big determinants of that whole story is that cats and dogs just operate at like 102 to 104 degrees. Like they they are operating at a higher body temperature than human beings are already. And this is where there are some bacterial uh, uh, pathogens that can be transmitted from human to cat or dog or cat or dog to human. But it's not actually as large as, as what one might think, whereas like human to other primate transmission is much easier and part of the reason is that our genetics are more similar, but also our, our body temperatures are typically more similar. So this is one of these kind of weird things we don't know. Is it low overall thyroid? Is it plastics in the environment? Is, is xenoestrogens? Like it's hard to know what exactly the causative factors are. People don't sleep as well. When people don't sleep as well, then their body temperature can drop. Also, it, it's worth mentioning that as life-saving as certain things that can mitigate fever, say like in a, a life-saving scenario, somebody gets strep throat and their body temperature is just going up like crazy and they could suffer brain damage or death, something like an ibuprofen or acetaminophen or something like that can really be life-saving. But there's some speculation that halting the fever response kind of mid-flight may create problems around the immune function and the metabolic function where our our metabolic rate just generally kind of kind of steps down. But yeah, it, it's really interesting. It's one of those kind of eye-opening things that this has happened in a relatively brief period of time. And it, it probably has some non-trivial implications for our health writ large. Yeah, the planet's heating, our bodies are cooling. Yes. Yeah. It's like, what, what do I do with this? It's, it's, it's top. It's interesting. Something else I thought was really interesting in your trends report. You talk about the Atlas of Inflammation Resolution, AIR. So what is it and why is it so important? Oh man. Uh, what it is, is a, a compendium of, it, this is interesting because virtually everything is getting linked back to systemic inflammation. And and this was kind of a crazy insight. It's like, well, cancer seems to have this underpinning of inflammation and, and cardiovascular disease has this underpinning of inflammation. So it, it's interesting in that it seems like most chronic degenerative processes have this underlying inflammatory response. But then when you think about the fact that in our bodies, we kind of have our 
our immune cells and then everything else and everything has this interface. It's well, of course that it's, it, I'm not saying it's not significant, but it, it's the weight has changed in some ways because it appears to underlie everything. But this Atlas of inflammatory resolution is looking at just a host of different disease processes from like rheumatoid arthritis to to the run-of-the-mill tissue healing, like you you strain your elbow or something and the tissue needs to go through a pro-inflammatory stage and then, and then a resolution stage where after effects of the immune system are kind of cleaned up and new tissue is laid down and whatnot. And this is just kind of a compendium of all the, the different known mechanisms in this process, what they currently are, some things that feed into that pro-resolution process. EPA and DHA, the the long-chain omega-3 fats, are a really key factor in that. Interestingly, some things that also tweak those prostaglandin and acosinoid pathways, like a baby aspirin every once in a while, might be really beneficial in in that story too. But it's just this massive atlas of all this information. It's kind of jaw-dropping how much information is composed in that. But it's looking comprehensively at, I would, I don't know that I would say all disease states, but virtually all disease states considering their inflammatory underpinnings and then some routes to properly addressing the inflammatory process. Yeah. Well, as you started off by saying, I think everyone we've had on here, you talk about the main culprits, it's inflammation. So it's right. chronic inflammation. It's the root of all evil. Everyone agrees. Then you start start getting into, well, defining it and it becomes interesting. And I think a little bit nebulous to some degree, but- uh, it, it has become because it's like even exercise to get the benefits of exercise, you need some inflammation. And this is where like NSAIDs or cold exposure, sometimes super high antioxidant intake, like post-workout vitamin C, you end up blunting the adaptive response to exercise. So this is where like, oh, it's just systemic inflammation. It starts losing a little bit of the gravitas, I, I guess. It's kind of like, man, everything is systemic inflammation. Learning like if you're reading something new, you're creating a little bit of an inflammatory process in certain parts of your brain, which stimulates the adaptive process to lay that stuff down as memories. And so you want some, you don't want too much, you want it well managed and, and all the rest of that. So I, I think we went from just not really understanding that inflammation was this really ubiquitous process to thinking that it was going to be the root of all problems. And it kind of is, but then it still begs the question, well, what are you going to do about it? And what are you going to do about it that doesn't cause even worse problems on the back end, that the cure is worse than the, the problem you're, you're facing? So, you, you know, you've talked about the importance of strength training, working out. You mentioned CrossFit. So I'm going to go to salt and electrolytes. It's something you have a personal passion. You, you literally founded a company called Element with our mutual friend, James Murphy. Mm -hmm. um, and you say, and I, I think this is interesting, we need more salt, not less salt, especially if you're on a low carb or keto diet, which a lot of people are. So can you elaborate about salt and electrolytes and what we really need there? Yeah, it's a lot to unpack, but you know, I think I've noodled on how to kind of share this story. But if one is placed on a, a medically supervised ketogenic diet, you go to a dietitian, they set you up, you're going to eat this much protein, this much carbs, this many fat, you will also be guaranteed to be prescribed at least five grams of sodium per day as part of the diet. And some of it might just be chicken bouillon. Some of it might be salting your food. But by hook or by crook, this well-educated ketogenic dietitian is going to make sure that you get at least five grams of sodium per day, which is more than double what the American Medical Association, American Dietetics Association recommends for folks at large. And part of the reason in that scenario is that it's been understood for a long time that in low insulin environments, either fasting or low carb diets, we go into this state called the naturesis of fasting. Insulin is really, it's interesting on a lot of different levels, but one of the things that it does is it causes an upregulation of the hormone aldosterone and aldosterone causes us to retain sodium in the kidneys. If we retain sodium, we retain more water and I don't know if I, I talked about this with, with you before we started recording, but you could maybe make the case that pH is like the most tightly regulated physiological process in the body. Like if pH goes up a little bit, goes down a little bit, you're dead. Electrolytes are just a little bit more latitude there. Like your blood glucose levels can change by 
orders of magnitude greater than what either your pH or your electrolytes can change and you could still live. It's not necessarily great to have a very high blood glucose level, but you won't die from it immediately. Whereas if you get your sodium potassium ratio off just a little bit, it, it can be a really gnarly downward spiral. In a low carbohydrate environment, this becomes doubly important to, to get this right because people will tend to lose sodium. And then in an effort to normalize the sodium potassium ratio, the body will tend to excrete potassium to try to renormalize things. And this is where things can be a really terrible downward spiral. The individual can end up with a cardiac arrhythmia and, and death. And surprisingly to many people, this is the same scenario that folks find themselves in when they're over consuming water in general. And this happens at virtually every marathon, every triathlon, every military boot camp, football double days at high school workouts where people are told to consume more water, drink ahead of thirst because the folks are really terrified of, of people becoming dehydrated. And so they drink a lot of water. The water doesn't have electrolytes in it, specifically sodium. They dilute the, the amount of sodium in their system. And you end up in this same hyponatremic state and, and not infrequently people are hospitalized or occasionally die from this. When you dig into medical research, there is not a single example of somebody willingly letting themselves die from dehydration. If somebody has access to some sort of liquid, they will consume it. Like you literally cannot, if somebody gets trapped in a mine or, or like they're lost in the desert, yes, they can die from dehydration. But if people are left to their own devices, they will not actively die of dehydration. But the medical literature is just thick with people who have over consumed water, depleted their sodium status to the point that they either are, are sick, hospitalized or die. So that's kind of like a, a piece of this story. Sodium has been really vilified or tagged along with problematic foods in that highly processed foods are typically loaded with sodium. But And I think we opened up this discussion around hyperpalatable foods and overeating and, and overweight. One of the big problems with being overweight is that most people develop hypertension, high blood pressure. And for sure, this increases our likelihood of stroke and heart attack. The problem in that story, though, is that scientists and, and medical professionals have rightly associated elevated blood pressure with sodium, but they've wrongly assumed that decreasing sodium intake will fix the problem. There have been a, a remarkable number of studies like the, the DASH diet studies and whatnot where people are put on effectively zero sodium diets, very low sodium diets, like the, the sodium that's in broccoli, very small amounts it doesn't fix the hypertension. It might improve it a little bit, but the main driver there is a hyperinsulinemic state. And these folks are typically consuming either too many calories or too many carbohydrates for their kind of best operating parameters. And in that scenario, it doesn't really matter so much how much sodium you're consuming, it's how much sodium reta you retain. So even on a low sodium diet, if your insulin levels are high, your aldosterone will be high, and you will retain most of the sodium that comes into your system. So low sodium diets don't really fix hypertension, but man, low carb diets really remarkably improve hypertensive individuals. So if people clean up their diet in any way, whether it's kind of just shifting more towards a Mediterranean diet or paleo or what have you, usually people will notice that for the first couple of weeks, like they really feel kind of, kind of pukey on it. They low energy, brain fatigue, headaches. And this is largely due to a, a lack of sodium to kind of balance that sodium potassium ratio. Once we pull out the, the processed food, sodium's maybe not the dangerous thing that we thought it was originally. And when we're eating a largely whole food based diet, we find that people eating at that five grams of sodium per day, and sometimes even significantly higher than that, blood sugar normalizes further, their sleep improves, appetite is much improved. Sodium and, and appetite seem to be pretty pretty tightly uh, tied together. So it's an interesting thing. And we've had a bit of a halo effect around element because people are so scared of sodium that 
even though some electrolyte products have kind of entered the market, in my opinion, they've really missed the mark on the, the formulation. They still emphasize potassium or sometimes magnesium. And both of those things are, are definitely important. But the an interesting thing is it's far more dangerous to be too low of sodium than too high. If you overconsume sodium, it'll take your kidneys 15 or 20 minutes to kind of sort that out and you will excrete the excess sodium. And it, it's really not that big of a deal. If you are too low of sodium though, and let's say you add in even more potassium, it can be fatal. So the margin for error on getting sodium right versus wrong really is kind of narrow on the, you would be better off getting a little bit too much versus too little. What about those who are vulnerable to high blood pressure? So like the sodium sensitive hypertensive individual, I would still make the case that for the vast majority of those folks, this is an insulin driven process and you're probably going to be hypertensive until you find a glycemic load that works for you. And you should tinker with that. In my second book, I had the seven day carb test where I encourage people to do blood glucose readings before and after eating uh, different carbohydrate meals and provide some guidelines for how high blood glucose should go under those circumstances. So if somebody is hypertensive, definitely if you're hypertensive and high carb, you don't need to throw something like element in the mix. Like you're already, you know, uh, going to have problems. But interestingly, once you find hopefully a glycemic load that works best for you, the hypertensive problem shouldn't really be an issue because it, it is largely driven by the, the hyperinsulinemic state. Well, this is where we talked about all those trackers. You know, I had my levels on a couple of weeks ago. You could track your, your glucose and see the yep. response you're having with whatever meal you're consuming. So I'm gonna I'm gonna come I'm gonna bring it back to longevity and specifically strength training. You're a big proponent. I'm sure people are listening. They're saying, "All right, what do I need to do in terms of a minimum with strength training?" And does it differ? We have a lot of female listeners. If I'm a woman, if I'm a man. What what are the variables in terms of age? What do you need to do as a bare minimum to make sure you're, you can check your boxes. I'm doing the appropriate strength training to make sure I'm going to have the health span and lifespan I desire. It's a really good question. And again, I'm not going to have, your question is going to be better than my answer, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so it, prior to even the strength training deal, some people will be like, I just hate doing anything like that. And so beyond that, like any physical activity is good. If you like running, run. If you like gardening, garden. If you like yoga, do yoga. The thing to keep in mind, though, is that our body gets super efficient at the things that we do. And so if you're doing yoga and you're like, oh, man, I get up on my handstands and all that stuff. That's great. That's good. That's far better than somebody who doesn't do it. But if you've been doing that same routine for 10 years, your body was adapted to it nine years, 11 months, and 28 days ago. And you really haven't caused a new stimulus in that scenario in, in, in all that time. Now, maybe you've helped forestall some of the, the loss of muscle mass and bone density or upper extremities, maybe your thoracic spine and whatnot. But the real key in this story is a novel load, a novel experience, something we haven't really done before, or it's achieved in a different way. And a very minimal dose can go a long way. If you have somebody that like a circuit training process, like I'm not elitist with this stuff. You go into like a globo gym or, and there's all the selectorized weight machines, get a session with a personal trainer. Like if somebody doesn't know anything about this stuff and have him or her walk you through how to press and pull and whatnot. But a, a really simple workout is you figure out the basic mechanics of pressing, pulling, hinging, squatting, lunging. And a lot of it could be machine-based and you start off, let's say there's a machine where you're pressing overhead and you're doing both arms, kind of a military press overhead. Start with a weight that is easy and you do it for 15 reps. And then you increase the weight a little bit and you do it for about eight reps. And you have a sense that you're like, eh, if I go this much more than getting about three to five reps is going to be hard. And then you do that three to five reps. Art, the retired economist and evolutionary biologist kind of developed this thing is called hierarchical sets. That should take you a minute to two minutes on that movement. Then you move to a different movement. Maybe it's a, a horizontal rowing movement, but you try to get all the planes of movement vertical press, vertical pull, horizontal press, horizontal pull, 
squat, lunge, maybe some ab or trunk work. But these hierarchical sets are awesome. You you start off at a very light load, you move it slowly, you increase the weight, and you move it a little bit more vigorously, and then you increase the weight pretty good where it, it it's hard to get say three to five reps done with this weight. Like you got to struggle, you got to bow down a little bit. That is maybe the greatest return on investment kind of strength training program that I could imagine because you could tweak that infinitely. Like one, one week you do both hands vertical press, the next week you find a different contraption. So you do single arm press on one side, single arm press on the other side and whatnot. But the, I, I would say that something like that hierarchical set and you do that two or three times a week is kind of like the minimum, the, the greatest return on investment. Like you're, you could do more and get more out of it, but the uh, return on investment is, is going to be flatter than that. Like for 15 minutes, three times a week, the results of a hierarchical strength training program like that, and you do a full body. Each time you go in, first day is vertical press, vertical pull, maybe a quad-centric movement, some abs and low back, and then you're out of there. The next week is a horizontal press, horizontal pull, hamstring, glutes, and again, like some abs and low back. That shouldn't take you more than 15 or 20 minutes to do a full body circuit on that, and you're in and out. And the, the return on investment with that is just shocking. And you can tweak the variables. To my point, the stimulus, you can change all the time by tweaking the loading a little bit, by changing the grips. One day you're bench pressed this way, another day you're bench pressed this way, another day you're supinated bench press and stuff like that. You can change little variables constantly so that you're getting different loading, different stimulus, and then even just selectorizing the weights a little bit differently. Like you have a, a massive variation there. So that would be like, you can certainly do less than that, but if you wanted to do the absolute minimum to get the absolute maximum, that's what I would do. Two or three days a week, full body movement, hierarchical sets. I think that's what everyone wants, the absolute minimum to get the absolute maximum. Right, <laughs> so, right, right. Um, and just to be clear, I like what you said. It's this idea that everything works until it doesn't. Is, it, is there a set time? Is it once you're doing something for like a month consistently or is it three months? It's like, hey, you got to shake it up. Yeah, but the interesting thing about that, you could tweak those hierarchical sets. So let's say you went 15, 8, 5 for a long time. You could tweak those and go 10, 6, 2. So you just, and the loading is totally different on that. There's another thing called alactic sets where once you start learning how to do a movement, say like a deadlift or a press or a, a pull or what have you, you put a weight on that if you tried as hard as you could get five reps with it and you only do two or three reps and then you rest for 10 or 15 seconds and then two or three reps, 10 or 15 seconds, two or three reps. And you get maybe 20 or 30 total reps with that. You can get very strong doing that. And you do maybe three exercises, a press, a pull, a hinge as an example with that. But with just a very little tweak, like between that a lactic set or, or type training that I mentioned there at the, the, that last part and the hierarchical set, you would never run out of variation with that. Like you would, if you want to go from machines to dumbbells, then you could do that. Machines to barbells, you have to be a little bit more careful with dumbbells and barbells. If you're doing bench press and you get stuck under it, you could die. So be a little careful with that. But like, it, there's so much variation you could do in a scenario like that. Got it. So I'm going to close with, you know, the future and. You, you've got the context of being in this world for quite some time. As you said earlier, you write about intermittent fasting 15 years ago. And so wellness has exploded. And, I, and I'm curious from your vantage point, what's interesting? What, what's a fad? What do you think is doesn't have staying power? And what do you think is a trend? What do you think has legs? Hmm. It's a really good question. I think the personalization of everything is legit. Like that is going to happen. I think, I think a lot of inefficiency is going to be injected into that system though, because I do still think for the vast majority of people, for the, the, the bulk of needs, some basic strength training, something that looks like an ancestral eating schedule, going to bed earlier versus later, meaningful community and work. 
those are still going to be the lion's share of the things that we do. I think in some ways, the wearables and the trackers and all that, they'll be valuable. But I think that it's really going to be easy for people to get lost in the shuffle because it, it, it's already difficult to really to have a voice that sounds credible if you're like, go to bed early, eat the bulkier calories early, two or three meals a day, strength training two to three days a week, do a little sprint interval training, and then try to learn a language and, and have some meaningful work. Like that's been done, but it, that the things that deviate away from that are the things that put focus ahead of that, I think are steering people kind of in the wrong direction. We don't need that customization until you're pretty goddamn good at that stuff. Like if you aren't, if you're not getting in bed earlier and wearing some blue blocks and all that type of stuff, there's nothing that you could do for your health and longevity that is going to benefit you more than doing that. And maybe a wearable will will help you. I know like Peter Atia has commented that he's less likely to eat dodgy food if he's wearing a CGM. I was like, okay, that's fair. Like it, for him, it doesn't exist if it doesn't get documented. Whereas if it ends up in his documentation and it screws up his beautiful blood glucose numbers and it pisses him off, then that that is a behavior modification tool then. And that's totally legit. But I think that customization and individualization will be absolutely the future. But I think that it's going to be difficult to keep the importance of just the basics and, and fundamentals as that's still really where you need to start. And doing $15,000 of genetic gut microbiome testing, like that could be really cool. Or if you have a really complex health situation, that, that may be worth digging into. But if we're really not ticking these other boxes, then I, I just don't see the upside of that. But that may also be why I'm not on the board of directors of very many tech wearable startups, because I'm very, I'm really blasé on, on, on that stuff. I think they're very valuable. I think they can provide insight, but I still think the basics are kind of where it's at and that we have so much roadway ahead of us with those basics. Like you don't really need to get out in the weeds very soon. Like let's just milk those basics dry. Like let's wring them dry before we start getting into genetic testing and all this other stuff. I'm with you. Well, well, well said again. We thank will, you. we will close Thanks. there. <laughs> Rob, Rob, uh, thank you so much. Really a huge honor and uh, look forward to hanging out with you in real life when all that stuff starts happening again. <laughs>